Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children, and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events, and there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself. But thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. But certainly it was a driving force of mine that children have the right to be safe. It's not a privilege. Lorraine was my boss for around five years of my 27-year career, but she had the biggest influence on me by a country mile. I had some fantastic male bosses as well, but they were just different. Lorraine has so many strengths, but one which was rare in any male boss I ever had was how Lorraine shared her vulnerabilities, and I'd never had a boss like her, and I never did. Her emotional intelligence and management of staff was something else. Through Lorraine, I learned that sharing vulnerabilities is a leadership strength because it's a connection. Even though her knowledge and experience in the field of sex assault and child abuse was incredible, Lorraine wasn't beyond reproach and she never made you feel inadequate. In fact, it had the opposite effect. She'd make you feel 10 foot tall. But she was also a woman not to be crossed if you did the wrong thing. Lorraine was strong in so many ways. And if someone treated her staff in a way that she didn't think was right or fair, she'd confront them. And it didn't matter if they were the divisional inspector, the chief superintendent, or an overstimulated detective of any rank. The rank didn't bother or intimidate her. She stood her ground and didn't hold back. But she did have a weakness. She couldn't give up smoking when the no smoking rule came in and thought that she had a foolproof plan where the bosses wouldn't know she was smoking in her office. Well, they're on to her and secretly they enjoyed walking into her office unannounced to find smoke coming from her top drawer where she'd shoved her lit cigarette. They'd just stand there and all watch the smoke <laughs> come out of the drawer. Lorraine was a rarity for me in the late 80s. She was a woman in a senior management position and I joined Lorraine's team 
a group of dedicated, passionate men and women who remain great friends to this day. And a group Lorraine handpicked for those uh, or for their respective skill set. We specialised in sexual and physical abuse of both children and adults, often literally holding their hands. But helping us behind the scenes deal with this was Lorraine and her sergeants who held our hands when we needed it. Lorraine's got strong views about the safety of children, children's opinions, children's emotional well-being and police who investigate and interview children. But I don't know about you, but after 40 years combined in both policing and child protection, I reckon she's got the runs on the board to have those opinions. So hang on to your hats, folks, and allow me to introduce you to the lovely Lorraine. Morning, Lorraine. Good morning, Narelle. How are you? That sounds like somebody I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's somebody I know very well. Now, before we start, uh, I we rang yesterday. I just thought I might share with this with the listeners. But before we started, um, I gave you a ring. Uh, this was yesterday, and I got a text back from you to say I can't talk. I'm currently at Love in Action doing some volunteer work. I'm frightened to ask Lorraine, but what's Love in Action? Love Love in Action is a Christian-based volunteer agency that supports vulnerable families with food and some other things, um, helping them to get back on their feet. So was it the Love in Action that surprised? Did you expect me to be at the Bruises social picnic or something? But, yes, it's (laughs) it's a... After that intro, I'm a bit worried how you see me. But, yes, no, it's a a volunteer agency that supports vulnerable families um, with food and with a bit of a chat and with lots of things. Wonderful. Yeah, you haven't had enough of um, helping the community in your 40 years, Lorraine. You just sort of think you might continue on with that. I suppose it's in your blood, isn't it? It is, Narelle. And if you have a – I've had a blessed life and the least that I owe is to do what I can for others. That's – that's what makes the world go round. We do what we can for others. You do it. Lots of us do it. We do it in different ways. And we love it, as you say. It is in our blood. Uh, I said in my intro that you'd had 40 years of experience in dealing with uh, vulnerable and at-risk children. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what you've done in that 40 years? Quick. Nothing is quick with me, Narelle. You know that. No. <laughs> I'm frightened to ask that as well. But yes, I know. I know. Nothing is quick. It's uh, I was 25 years with Victoria Police and 15 years with Department of Health and Human Services, um, the majority of that time in, as you say, um, in relation to sexual assault, physical assault, family violence, um, remembering in Vic Pole when I first joined, that was Women Police Division um, and it was a dual-track child protection system. Um, that went to a single-track child protection system. And when I resigned from Victoria Police, I realised I still had that yearning in relation to children at risk um, and was given the opportunity to be able to gain re-employment with Department of Health and Human Services to remain in that field. You've obviously got um, a real connection with children, um, vulnerable children and children at risk. Where, Where does that come from? I think, as you said earlier, in your blood, I was the youngest of five children with a mum and dad that were very committed to helping others. I think I'd said to you previously about my dad being concerned about too many of my sentences if they started with I was a good indication that I wasn't thinking enough of other people. And they were people who very much lived what they said. And so mum and dad were great helpers of people. And particularly my dad um, had skills with children that I probably haven't seen in any other people. It it was my dad that taught me to get down on your knee to talk to a child so that you're on their level, Um, talk to them in a language that they can understand, treat them with respect. And he in turn treated us like that. So there's much that you can say comes from upbringing, nature, nurture. We can have those arguments or discussions, um, but certainly a basis for me was living as the youngest of five with a mum and dad 
who were continually looking and doing for others and we were encouraged to do the same. Yeah, you've you've got many sayings, Lorraine, um, some of which I can't repeat in public, um, which are classics, Lorraine classics, but one of them that I can share is your belief that every child has a right to feel safe. Can you tell us about that? Every child does have the right to feel safe. It's not, it's not a privilege. It's not dependent on where you're born or who you're born to. Or it's, it's, it's your right to be safe. And that, of course, is going to start from childhood. Having the benefit of always having felt safe and felt secure is probably a driving force of mine to work in that field because I have always felt safe and I have always felt secure. And much of that came, again, from from an upbringing. So if there's something along the way that you can teach or show that encourages that to pay it forward, um, I can't think of anything better than that. I have also been known to say that often I would rather spend time with children than I would with adults. Um, Just love them. I love watching their interaction with each other love, you know, asking them open questions and getting their opinions and their thoughts and, yes, but certainly it was a driving um, force of mine that children have the the right to be safe. It's not a privilege. Mm. You know, when you talk about that, I think about my own childhood and you're right. I have never, uh, I can't imagine not um, feeling safe um, and, you know, having um, a roof over my head and parents that love me, it, it's something foreign to me to not have that. So, um, and I feel the same. I, I want everyone to feel um, lucky, fortunate like I am. I um, suppose we do our best, don't we? Yeah, and what you say is exactly right, Narelle. I think it's, it's what you've had yourself is what you would want for other people because it's helped mould you with who you are or the fact that you were safe or the fact that you were comfortable. I often think of saying to mum and dad that I wanted to join um, the police force and that was back in the 70s. So that was quite um, unknown to them and there wasn't any police women that we knew, but there was nothing about why I shouldn't do it. It was why I should do it. So then again, that was probably very much... You know, as we've discussed, I wasn't told I couldn't do something. It was why you would do it and those consequences of what might happen if you did do it. So, um, you know, in having that yourself, you think this this is an expectation I have that all children should have or I would want them to have, to feel safe and secure and loved and wanted. Yeah, I, uh, I couldn't agree more. You know, there's a lot that's changed with um, how the authorities, be that police courts, the justice system or, or, and or child protection, how we uh, deal with vulnerable and at-risk children. Uh, what are your thoughts on what we're doing right and where we need improvement, say, for instance, um, in a police sense? Um, I, I retired, I retired, resigned in 2000. Um, and then with child protection, retired in 2016. And so a lot of what they may be doing in the last four years, I, I haven't kept up to date with, but would presume it's, um, you know, much the same. And on what we're doing right or wrong, we always need to be thinking of where we can improve because some things do need improving but some things don't. We, we don't have to change things just because we like change. There are some things that don't need to be changed. But the one thing I always felt in policing and child protection was, was speaking to the child, asking the child how they feel. I often felt that in watching and listening to how things were um, decided upon or listened to or decisions were made, were adults talking to adults about what they thought children might think or what was best for children or how children should respond, whereas quite often what the children felt could have been totally different to what you were thinking. So I, th- I think that there's always improvements. So going back to, as I said earlier, in the, the single track 
child protection system. When I joined the police force, that was Women Police Division. Women were just starting to go into uniform duties. I remained with Women Police Division that then became Community Policing Squad um, and then, of course, you know, later on the sexual offence and child abuse investigation team. So the duties that I did for those 40 years were always very victim-centric in speaking to people who had been subjected to these behaviours rather than the perpetrators. And so the biggest thing in listening to that was actually listening to people, letting them have a voice, and quite often what they thought or what they felt was different to what um, you may have thought. So if, you know, a, a victim to me was so many of them, the sense that someone had listened and had believed them, that, you know, that was, that was a big thing. So it, it's talking to people and asking them what they think, what they would like or what their expectation is because you may speak to somebody that what they think is going to happen if they do this or say this, that, that it's not at all. So knowing what people expect of you is also a great help in knowing what you can actually achieve for them. So there we go, right off the tangent, always go off the tangent, but in, in, a, in a police um, sense, you know, I remember again, it, if you think back to Broadmeadows, there was some of those wonderful things that we had in place with, you know, having work share with Department of Human Services where, um, you know, they would come to work with us for a fortnight, we would go with them. You know, the same work share that we had with the Gatehouse Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. Now, all of those thoughts were because I felt that to know what other people were doing and how they were doing it, you actually needed to get in there to see what it was that they were doing because you can have conflict because you don't understand where each other are coming from and your requirements, legislative, statutory, whatever, may be different. So if you, you could do it. So there for a while we had the successful program of work share, you know, with DHS, with the Gatehouse Centre, um, with, you know, the CPS members going into the rape squad, to the child exploitation squad. Understanding a lot of my terminology now, Norelli's quite historical because it was back in the day, but I still believe that those things back in the day, they still work today because there's nothing no better understanding that you'll have by working side by side with someone in watching what it is that they're doing and how that actually fits into what you want to do. Um, a child protection sense, um, much the same thing, having worked in dual track, having worked in single track. Do you understand the, uh, the, the difference? Because I use that terminology. A dual track child protection system was where Victoria Police uh, were also statutory interveners and they too would issue care applications as they were then yep. and they become protection applications. Yep. So in 1991, after a report by Justice Fogarty, that changed to being single track, that police were statutory interveners but by practice didn't issue protection applications. It became a responsibility of Department of Health and Human Services. So that's where the terminology single track, dual track came in. So in being part of that change from women police, community policing, and then dual track, single track, um, there was a need of people being able to work together because, as you would understand, back in the 80s, the early 90s, um, Victoria Police worked very differently from social workers. So if you're going to want those things to work together, you have to have the encouragement that you get people working together or at least understanding each other. So, you know, now I'm aware that there's um, – I would look or steal other people's ideas. That's what it's like. I remember thinking, hearing of a multidisciplinary um, response, and I think it was Canberra was the first one that I heard where everything was under the same roof, you know what I mean? So it was like, you know, and so then I think I went to Queensland once because I'd heard of scan teams, and they were teams that if a child presented with um, – you know, uh, uh, unidentifiable or you weren't sure of where or how an injury had occurred, that every agency who was likely to be involved with that family would have a case conference before, um, not people made a move, but you, you were in it from the start. So very early in the piece, I, I felt that need of being, being together from the start with regards to how things were going to happen. And, of course, that, you know, resulted in, you know, where we met, Broadmeadows, with the sexual offence and child abuse investigation team where detectives came to work in our office um, for that very reason, that it was the 
uh, person who had uh, spoken to you, taken the statement, engaged with you, and the detective who was investigating it was going to be in the same place. So it, it's there's always that need of people working together and understanding it. Yeah. I can see um, years and years ago when it was a single track, I remember thinking to myself, this isn't going to work to have to share our information with somebody else, another department, because for some reason it became like our case. Like this is how it was years and years ago. It was our case and I'm not going to share it with anybody. Um, I know more about this case than anybody. I don't want somebody coming in and giving me another opinion. I know what I'm doing. Like that was the mindset in that single track. I think the the um, dual track is a fantastic system um, and I think we've all uh, got our heads around that now. It's It's been dual track for a long, long time, but it just works so well because police and DHS together, um, are, you know, like sort of bread and butter, they go together, don't they? Yes, yes. And if you if you go right back, this is where oh, it's such a dinosaur, isn't it? Like it's, I think, got to be the most boring person uh, to listen to. However, it's like having a lot of information over 40 years of how things went. And I remember um, Justice Fogarty's report actually spoke of forensic teams, having forensic teams, and that was having that team of police and social workers that went out from the very start. And that was something that I felt wasn't necessarily picked up by either police or DHS at the time. Um, and, and in fact, you know, in saying we can talk about supportive bosses or who's not or who is, but I was lucky enough to have very supportive bosses at, at Broadmeadows um, if it sounded reasonable. And it, it, there was actually an offer made of a police station, an empty police station at the time, and with a thought that we would put the community policing squad as it was then and community welfare services, I think they were called then, um, putting us in the same building on different tables with different phone lines so that the information that was going to police went to police or likewise to community welfare services, but with the thought being that we had the same information at the time that we went out to investigate. And that would have been marvellous. I still say that that would have been marvellous. And perhaps I was reading the other day about a, um, I was told about Orange Door, and which seems to be the multidisciplinary response as well. And so that's, I suppose that's something that back in the day, I think anyone who knew me would have known that I, I was all for this multidisciplinary response all of the time. Because if we all start from the same place with the same information, the best result for that is for the people that we are providing the service to. It's not about what we're happy with, not about what we own. It's about we are obliged to provide the best service. And um, how do you do that? By having the best information you can get. So um, I suppose one thing that always interested me and still does, and I'm sure someone could explain it, I was interested why children were placed on orders when it was a vulnerable child or their basic needs weren't being met, the questioning was around, um, I, just, I often wondered why it was the children placed on orders and not the, the parent. You know, because your mind's going, you know, all of the time because it's, it's and I think, oh, why is, it, why is it on the child? Why is the child subjected to the order? And then, and then the child, the child would think, I've been naughty, um, I've been put on an order, sort of, so I can see that the child would think it was their fault, whereas it's got a lot of merit, what you say, that you put the adults on the on the uh, order, not the children. I mean, the children are, unfortunately, the, they're just in the background, aren't they? Well, as I say, I'm not saying it's, it's right or right. Well, I say often enough I've got an opinion on things, but you know what, it keeps your mind active as well. But if I drive too fast, I get a ticket, not my car. And if, yeah. do you know what I mean, if, yeah. if yeah. I'm responsible for what I do. So I think if you have a child, why is the, yeah, just, yeah, just simply that, why is the child on the order often, mm. Um, mm. you know, used to think that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back a little bit 
to when you were talking about um, we don't speak a lot. Well, years ago we didn't. We went straight to the adults. If there was a, a domestic uh, situation, we'd speak to the adults. You'd never speak to the kids. And I, I don't know where that come from, but I'm just thinking now, do you remember as a kid, this is in the early 60s, that there was a saying that children are to be seen and not heard. I can often remember hearing that being said, uh, you know, I don't think it was said at our uh, table, but that was a quite a common thing back then that you did, kids didn't sort of talk. You just ate your food and shut up. Yes. You know, when you say about some of the sayings and the sayings that I have, absolutely, I have heard children should be seen and not heard. Mm. I, again, what I remember is my dad saying was, it's not the children should be seen and not heard. Children should be seen, listened to and taught to understand their place and their position. Yeah, yeah. And so that will make you comfortable people to live around. So, um, you know, Dad wouldn't necessarily allow a child to interrupt him if he was speaking to somebody else, but he would certainly give the message that what the child had to say was important and he needed to listen to it, but he had to finish this conversation first. So, but there certainly was a time, was there, and children should be seen and not heard. Oh, I'm glad my parents. Can you imagine me being seen and not heard? Or you? How would you be? <laughs> was clearly never told to us. That's <laughs> good to say. How did that work for you, Nara? <laughs> hey, it um, didn't work for me. <laughs> hey, in the last six weeks or so, I've spoken with the mother of a young man who's in jail for serious driving offences and it nearly killed him and his four passengers. Um, and I've also spoken to the mother and father of a young man who killed not only himself but four other innocent people. It, it, just so sad on so many levels. But both the young male drivers were driving whilst they were suspended, they were drunk, they had taken drugs and they were speeding. So... <sighs> How do you think the courts should deal with suspended drivers who flout the law, like driving on our roads? Look, I just wonder, what are we doing wrong? Why are we not getting through to our young teenagers? Why can't we maybe have an interlock device for suspended drivers like we do for drink drivers perhaps? Do you have any views on uh, what are we doing wrong with those with the young people? I often don't think that there's a right or wrong for lots of things, Narelle, I, I, and, and it will continually sound like a fob off, I know that, but I will inevitably go back to behaviour and I'll inevitably go back to boundaries and consequences and what we create um, in and around ourselves. I'm often interested that we spend a lot of time dealing with the effect of something rather than not going into um, the cause of, of how we got to that. And, again, that would be... How often did you hear and I hear that somebody would have done something that was totally out of character? They've never done anything like that before um, and will probably never do anything like that again. And so it, it's listening to people as to why that hap happens and knowing that some of those things we are not going to – there's some things that we won't change, there's some things we can do better, but we can't fix everything. But it's, it's um, you know, in, in, in pointing – or working out, I don't know that you ever come to um, a decision or a discussion point that everybody will agree on on everything. So, and you're saying what what do I what do I? I don't necessarily think about the person. I think what 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 leads to that because we, we've all done it. We've, we can all look back and think, well, what on earth? What made me do that? What made me say that? And I know in my life there's some things I look back and think, I have got no idea why I did that. Yeah, yeah. Now, perhaps you're blessed if it didn't impact on anybody else's um, environment or what was going to happen to them. So, you know, my there's a part of me, you know, give them an interlock device. Well, they may very well just drive somebody else's car. So it, it's you've got to things that you, people have got to want to be um, – worked with if, if things are going to change. I know that's not an answer at all, but I don't think that there actually is an answer because I think people will have different views and different things. And, again, 
often I will go back to what you taught or how you taught it. And I'm not saying in this case or any other case, but clearly a discussion that we had as children was my dad was very clear on do not interfere with other people's personal safety or other people's property. Very much do not do not do things. Now, did I listen to that all the time? Probably not. I'm sure there's people I've offended. But um, there's there's things that you um, you think back on and I think it would be heartbreaking to be in that situation and particularly if it's a one-off you know, why on earth did that happen? But for courts, you know, we've all got the answer of how other people should do things, haven't we, Nora? Yeah. All of us. Yeah. Well, it's, we it's, tr- yeah. well, we don't. That's the problem, I think. No. <laughs> you know, no. I, I don't think I'm alone in getting tired of hearing how a person's upbringing and mental health has contributed to why they attacked a person, for instance, or killed someone in a park or wherever else. And I'm not taking away from the fact that they may have had it tough, but many who have had it tough don't end up being violent and full of rage. So I'm wondering what are your thoughts on the way uh, mental health is addressed, not just by the courts, but by us in the community? Again, it's it's a um, it's one of those questions that people will have different responses and thoughts of, um, as I say something or as you say something or. I'm always aware of desensitising people to certain things. I often, of course, sit and listen to the... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Resources and the money that goes into family violence, we still have children and women and men who are unsafe. Um, with regards to, well, this is what's happened and this person's mental health has been impacted upon, there's great interest in listening to what people around you are saying and as much as people would say you don't get a word in if you happen to be talking to me, probably true, <laughs> I do spend a lot of time listening and 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 I think you learn when you're listening. You don't learn when you're talking. You learn when you're listening. And what I listen to sometimes and become um, aware of is that 
there's a desensitising if people are pounded with it and you start to lose the message if they don't see that there's been an improvement. So there's lots of things that have been terrific improvement with policing, with courts, with with how family violence is now addressed, with with how things are done now. Mm. You can imagine the difference as what it was like back in the 70s. Um, So there's lots of improvements like that. But I guess I'm one of those people that thinks, no, you're not going to stop it totally, mm. but what? It, how, how do we actually change behaviour? So most of the conversations that I have now about anything at all, Narelle, will actually go back to behaviour and how soon do you start to modify that behaviour, how soon, and a lot of, you'll have parents who don't agree on how they bring up their own children yeah. or you'll have people who don't agree that this consequence is too hard for that consequence. You, you listen all the time, but for me, I just it always goes back to behaviour, and I become disappointed if if people are desensitised because something is just um, in your face all the time. Does that make yeah, sense? It does. And you stop. Yep, very much listening. so. Very yeah, much. yeah. So I'm not really answering questions at all, am I? It's, no. I well, it's but it, it, it's more um, your thoughts, and just, and I mean, um, often our thoughts aren't answers; they're just you know ideas. Uh, we can go back to good thoughts, can't we, Narelle? <laughs> yeah, we can. Um, so you might have an opinion on this. What do you say to those who suggest that a woman shouldn't wear a certain outfit? Uh, she shouldn't have too much to drink, Uh, she needs to curb her behaviour if you're going to get home safely without fear of being attacked or dragged off the street. What do you think about those sort of thoughts? I don't really, I don't have an opinion on that. I I have an opinion for myself on my personal safety Um, and so what I do is going to be around what is going to make me safe. So it's not about what you drink or where you go or how you dress, it's about a feeling of safety for me. So I I watch and read, like everybody else, with interest about moderating behaviours and, you know, women should do this, um, able to do this. It's because of men's behaviour. And I think where I seem to be offensive in Narelle is that when it comes to if it's a specific relation to gender to me it's it's more around safety because I know there's situations where young men would be safe mm. so I know there's situations mm. where women are going to be unsafe or and you're, you're taken literally as soon as those words come out of your mouth so I don't have any judgment on what other people do but if you ask me what do I do I'm aware of my own safety so um, at my age or where I would go or what I would do, and I, I'm happy to make that that choice because it's based on my safety. I suppose what I'm getting at with that there is you're very strong about how you feel about, um, or you've always felt very strongly about victims of um, sexual assault, and we'd have to say the majority of victims of sexual assault, certainly in my career, was um, from young females or, or females in general. And I suppose I get a bit sick. In fact, I get sick to death of hearing victim blaming. Um, You know, it happened because of what she was wearing. It happened because she'd had too much to drink. And it's not about the behaviour of the offender. It's more to do with the behaviour of the victim. And that's what, pardon me, really pisses me off. I'm just wondering if it pisses you off too if it does I I I suppose because I don't did you I didn't think did you I didn't think like this is the circumstances I don't think like that this is what's happened and I think that you challenge that if if it's said then you challenge that at the time and say well then tell me about that and tell me why 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 are you making an excuse but Narelle does it go back to something as simple as um like I, I know I talk about him a lot, but, you know, I, I never have even yet met a man like I respect, like my dad, just for those with, for a man who went to grade five, didn't have tertiary qualification, any other thing, for what came out of that man's mouth and how it, it set me on a path that I think was a reasonable 
uh, was a good life was was that that concentration not on the person but the behaviour or what was happening. So I think we've often had discussions yep. about gender doesn't enter into my mind. Like you can't do that because I was never told you can't do that because you're a girl. Well, I'm not going to do it because I'm not strong enough to do it. I can't lift up that bale of grass hay. So, so a lot of those things. So, you know, so a woman's dressed like that, that's how she's dressed. Well, it's not about how she's dressed. It's the behaviour that occurred. Um, you know, we can, we can have that. What you don't want to do is incite divisive and you don't want to separate people even further by laying the blame game. And I think, I think what I learned early in my career, I don't know about you, was number one, like not number one, but going to a domestic um, and you would reasonably have two adults. So to me, the two adults are standing and they can talk and they can answer you. They don't require immediate medical attention. But my first thought would be, where are the children? Where are the children? Because I want to know where the children are and what have they heard and what have they seen. How often did you hear the children are asleep and they haven't heard anything? How often did you hear the children are outside, they wouldn't know what we were saying? But I would still seek those children out to ask them, are you a bit surprised at what they saw or what they heard? And sometimes where you found them, under beds or inside wardrobes. So a lot for me just remains around the behaviour and what what that behaviour may result in so whether it's right or wrong because it's someone else I don't want someone else's bad behavior to necessarily reflect on my safety does that make sense to you so I'm I'm not going to stick my hand in a fire because I'll get burned yeah no no I understand completely uh and I suppose just while we're on um the kids that do um you know we do find under beds and in wardrobes and have heard a lot of things um the kids that get in trouble, um, personally, I'm not convinced that removing children from a home and placing them in residential care is the answer, but I don't know what is. The residential care places that I've seen and I've attended um, were just, oh, my God, they were just so sad. Um, they were cold. like They lacked any sort of warmth, and I'm not taking anything away from the workers because they worked under Oh, terrible conditions. But I just thought the residential care places for kids, they just lacked warmth and atmosphere. They were just so very, very clinical. Do you have any thoughts about residential care homes for children? Lots of thoughts in relation to children and how they grow up and what they grow up in. And talking to people, you get your best information. And so I used to have little... I have lots and lots of, of, as you said earlier, opinions or or listening to or asking children. There was a, numerous things that stuck in my mind over that 40 years, Narelle, and that would be the number of children where parents um, had separated or whatever. There may have been family violence. You talk to those children and they'd never actually – they didn't want their parents to separate. They wanted behaviours to stop. I remember – Back in the day, we, did, we didn't have the courses and you didn't have what's available now in sending people out to deal with these things. You know, you went into the police academy and dealing with child protection, you did a social welfare class for half an hour a week and then out you went into the women police division and, and you did it. So a lot of that information that you got or I got was talking or listening um, to children. So I'm not saying that I have done research or these are statistics. I'm saying what I listened to and the things that resounded with me. And what resounded with me is I, I don't think I came across any more than 10 children who actually wanted their parents to separate. They just wanted behaviour to change. But how do you ensure that behaviour changes if you're not living in the home or you've got people conducive to knowing the change has to occur? But certainly there can be, you know, a residential unit um, can't be expected to take the place of a functional environment for a, for a young person. Can it? And if and then if there's if you, if you have children who are coming from, you know, in understanding with child protection, you may have those children who are vulnerable and at risk, and then you have other young people who are committing offences. And if you have those children in placement together, um, that's not likely to happen within a family unit. But if there's numerous of those young people together, um, you know, there's so many supports that have to be in there to make sure you must make sure that you can get the best out of people. 
People have to be encouraged to get the best out of themselves. And how do you best do that? Again, there's not a lot of people that will, you know, agree on on um, on how you do that. You know, pers- a personal. I've been a great believer in, you know, sporting activity or encouraging people to do things. There's nothing like that feeling of paying it forward and doing something for somebody else to feel good. There's no better feel-good feeling than that. And better still when you don't tell everybody about it, that's the best thing. Just go <laughs> yeah. and do it because you can. Yeah. And if, if, if you can encourage that in people, um, you know, it might be pie in the sky. I don't care. But that doesn't stop you living like Encourage people to get the best out of themselves, not what they can't do but what they can do um, and, and do it as well as they can. You know, it's just it's. You know, don't remember Dad saying to me, you know, a bit of a lazy, you know, you hide when you thought the work was going to be there. And in one of those, when you say the one-liners, most of those come from my dad and that's why you can't probably repeat them because he'd say, don't waste your time arguing with a fool because you're going to waste time and you're not going to learn anything and you'll get beaten with experience. <laughs> you know, you'd have, have these little pearls of wisdom as you're wandering around with him. And I remember one day I must have hidden from something and he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, there's two types of people in this world there's those that'll do as little as they can for as much as they can get and there's those that'll do as much as they can for as little as they have to and you're going to be the second one (laughs) so there was no more hiding in the hay bale and you know to get out of work or but so but did they affect how I dealt yes they did you know again you know don't um if you say where do you get I what I didn't say at the start was how blessed am I to have had a working life that I finished doing what I started. And and that in itself is like a circle of life. I've had such a circle of life and been blessed because I joined the women police. It was women and children. That's what you did. Then it was equal opportunity. And then you could do the other things and then go to human services and you end up again doing protection applications, which is how you started. So for me, you know, to go through the police force, get to the rank of acting inspector, come back and be doing what a protective worker does as like a constable, that that was just like a blessing in disguise as a career as such because I finished doing what I'd started. And so it's it's like a big circle. That's true. But what you did was you finished um, doing what you loved and what you were best at and that's where I feel uh, – you were you finished on the front line. You were working with vulnerable kids, at-risk kids, and when you get into management, you lose that connection, don't you? That um, you're more managing people and your staff rather than what, uh, and that was um, definitely one of your great qualities was managing staff but you were also great at dealing with people and that's probably why you're so good at looking after staff as well. But those kids um, must have been, you know, very uh, fortunate to have um, had you in their corner. No, no, no. I was privileged to work with them. It was a privilege to work with the people I work with, but it was also a privilege to work with the families and so forth that I that, that I worked with because it's um, – it, it was just, yeah, it was, it was a privilege, Narelle, because it doesn't, you're not going to change the world for people. Not gonna, it wasn't about changing the world for people. But, you know, sometimes someone will say something with you and it resonates and stays with you forever. And it could be something, and I prefer to think we can do that. But for, for the, the police force or dealing with people and stuff, it, the benefit was for me, like to work, not all rubbish, to work with people like you, to work with the people that we know that we worked with at Broadmeadows, to work with people that I worked with at, at Geelong, Sexual Offences Squad, at Altona North, the other places where I worked. What a privilege for me to have, have worked with them. It's not, it's not, but certainly, yes, in management, in the police force, getting in that level, certainly I came to a rank where I looked around me and thought, no, this is not me. This definitely is not for me because um, I'm back happier where it is sort of, you know, with, um, with people and, and, ha- and still remain because people are fascinating. I love people. Everybody has a story. And my, my dad would say, you can't find the good in someone. You can't find the good in someone. You need to go back and have another look because it sits with you, not with them. 
So true. And, and all those little things that motivate you, you know, the same as, you know, the, who are you going to take advice from? Don't take advice from somebody who's right all the time because you're not going to learn anything because you need to take advice from someone who's going to tell you what they did wrong, how they improved it or what they did to change things. So true. That's who you listen to. So, yeah. you know, I often think now, well, where did his knowledge come from? Having left school, having been a labourer, had where did his knowledge come from with other people? Fascinating. So if, if there's a little bit of that, but the privilege is all mine with the people that I've worked with. I've never had any, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, child protection workers would have to be one of the most under-resourced, overworked, stressed workplaces I've ever dealt with, and I doubt it's changed very much. Um or I hope it has, but I doubt it. Uh, Many of the workers that I worked with back in my day were really young, like just out of uni, and I felt they were just thrown in the deep end. And I suppose the decisions that they make about children's safety and futures, they've got huge implications. So what sort of or what type of emotional or psych support do DHHS workers have in their workplace or when you're around? When I was around, I was aware that the support was there and the support was available if you needed to, um, you know, to call on it, if, if you needed it. Um, I often was heard to, to make the comment that doing child protection with DHS, I don't know that I would have been able to do it if I hadn't have had those years in policing experience. So I totally, um, yeah, agree with the, the years of policing were what gave me the, um, not the experience, but just that dealing with people in those vulnerable type situations um, certainly came from policing, not not from any training or, or anything like that that I would have got from a tertiary education. Um, but with regards to their um, psychology, I think a lot of it, Two is talking to other workers, talking to other people, but certainly there was a clear process that if you needed to seek support, you could, um, you know, you could seek support. And and that support, Narelle, it's, it's an interesting thing on how you think about it. I think, you know, recently I think I was told, um, so I hope I'm not quoting it wrong, but that, you know, there's, you know, psychologists that, that go into um you know, different units. I remember back at Broadmeadows, we had a, a psychologist come, you know, every few months to talk to staff. Um, I was never present for that because I could have been part of their stress because I was the boss and the boss often is part of people's stress. So um, there was a clear need even then um, for people uh, to be able to talk or to know that that is available and that I think the it has to be provided rather than people seek it. To, to me, there's that subtle difference that there's that subtle difference to say, well, here this support is. There's that subtle difference between you saying thank you but no thank you as opposed to saying if you feel that you need the support, go and seek it for yourself. But that, again, is my opinion. Someone else reasonably, rightly may say, no, 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 the fact that it's offered is sufficient. Whereas, yeah, I, I perhaps think that um, so back at at Broadmeadows, if if someone had have said to me, look, I really don't want to go into that session, um, I would have said fine. But to me, the session was there, um, so it's far better to say no, they don't want to go to that session rather than seek that session themselves. Yeah, yeah. I take a long time to answer a question, don't I, Narell? My mind is going all the time, but um, because you've. You've got to be careful that you can't. It's all very well to say, oh, yes, but that's on offer. But it's how is it on offer? Can you tell me more about that? That's that's probably one of my – can you tell me more about that? Because it's a lot of things are said and it's it's a response, but you think, well, hang on a minute, just tell me more about how that actually works because it's all very well to say that it's in place, yeah. but can you tell me how it works? Yeah, well – in my experience, and there'd be a lot of, um, and I can only speak from police, a police uh, perspective rather than um, child protection, but it was there, but to actually go and make that move of asking for help, um, I suppose it was looked on very negatively and I'm just wondering 
with I don't know why, but I don't imagine child protection would have that negativity um, if you were asking for help. Do they or no? I wouldn't think no, not negative. Yeah, no, mm. because it's 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 that isn't it's that um, you know if you look at nursing, they may have a different approach to how people approach with teaching, or depending on what line of work we're in is how we're going to respond to different things so you know with with working with um with social workers um no very supportive supportive people supportive with who they're working with um you know different often asked you know is it different i don't look for differences you know well this is you know this is where you're working now um this is where you were working before and take the information you can from one to the other to make it work better for for everyone around you so um you know working i suppose i find those interesting things narel that when I was in the police force and people would know, I was probably interested in, you know, back in the day you would send a constable and senior constable out, you know, to make a decision and they would make that decision um, quite often without, you know, speaking to a sergeant or speaking to a, a supervisor. And I'd think, oh, that's, you know, um, and it was, and social workers would speak to a team leader. But then at the time of being in the latter years, um, you know, policing was also changing, that there was far more consultation with supervisors and sergeants. So it's been, it's been an interesting journey for me watching, watching all of those changes. There's so many changes in how things were done, you know, back in the day, as we love to say, as opposed to how they're done now and, you know, which is better. No, I'm not, I'm not going to compare or which is better what a privilege to, to work in something that you enjoy um, for that, that period of time. What a privilege. And that's, that's how I'll continue to see it. You, you know, I suppose looking back when you're talking about a, a, a couple of um, constables or senior constables going to a job and they make a decision, I feel that back then our decisions were more trusted, whereas it seems to me now that I suppose it's such a litigious, much more litigious society now. So I suppose you've got to be a bit more um, careful of the decisions you make. But now it doesn't appear that anybody makes a decision unless they're consulted with, you know, a supervisor, which I think is a shame in a way. Um, but I understand why it's got to that. Um, yeah, Um I suppose uh, I'd better think about um, uh, closing up, but I, I suppose I just want to ask you another uh, thing. Like I've recently read an article um, about an MP who allegedly behaved in a pretty offensive manner, um, and I must admit at least he accepted responsibility for it and he admitted what he'd done was inappropriate and, you know, that he needed some help. Um, it was he either suggested it or somebody else suggested to him that he should attend an or he needed to attend an empathy course. Do you think it's possible to teach empathy to a forty-plus adult, like man, woman, or whoever? Well, that's a bit loaded. That's a loaded question. Well, you see, empathy is the ability to share the feelings of another person. That's what empathy is. Sympathy is the sympathy is a feeling of pity. Or a sense of compassion, you feel bad for someone else who's going through something hard. That, that would be my understanding of the difference between empathy and sympathy. Um, so empathy, the ability to share feelings of another, is a good indication that you shouldn't have done what you'd done. So if you need a course to be taught empathy, I think you'd probably need to have it much before you're in your 40s. So um, it, it's... I don't. I don't mean because look. I read public. I, I read current things with interest, as you can imagine. And you can imagine some of the comments and so forth. They'd be worthy of another podcast, but certainly without identifying who I was. But you see, you went to lots and lots of courses too, Narelle. I went to lots and lots of courses too. But there was courses that I might have might have taught me how how to do the job, but there wasn't ever a course that actually taught me how to get the best out of people. And 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 so this is the same as saying, well, you know, you do an empathy course, do you, is it possible to teach it? Um 
Oh, I would think that. What do you think? <laughs> well, I reckon you're saying no. I reckon you're saying no. I don't think you can teach empathy. I think it's innate. I think um, that you can um, help and make them think about it a bit more, but I think you've either got empathy or you haven't. I, I don't know how you can teach it. And I think that's probably what you're saying. I don't mean to put words into your mouth. Well, I think I'd probably like to say do an empathy course to see whether or not I learned from it because I I can be very quick to make an opinion or have an opinion or, um, you know, it's probably one of my major flaws, but I can be very quick. Whereas the, you know, my first thing in relation to a lot of human interaction between people is that there's probably a percentage of it that you cannot teach, that that's inherent that comes from the person because there's some things that we know are right and wrong. Yes. That's what it'll go back to. Yep. That's right or wrong. Yep. So um, if we want to put other words around that, that's fine. Uh, but there's certain things that I'm not going to do, Narelle, because I know it's wrong. So um, and particularly if it involves somebody else, of course you would ask their permission if you could do that. Now, like I was in a situation, say, in the last few days where someone said to me, oh, well, did you tell so-and-so about that? And I said, no, because I hadn't asked you if that was okay to relay that information. So there's some things that you just do that, that can't be taught. You inherently think, oh, that's wrong. And I'm not saying that I haven't done anything wrong. That makes you sound like the, you know, guardian angel. Does I don't mean that. But in, in teaching people how to get the best out of people or teaching people um, you know, empathy or sympathy or I'd actually have to do one of those courses and think, well, did I get anything out of it? Because somebody else might do it. It's the same as I say to you, why would you want to have a conversation with me? There is nothing that I have done that could possibly be of interest to other people because that's genuinely how I see it. I've had a privilege of doing what I want to do for 40 years and have had a great life. So what could anyone find interesting about that? But I find listening to you interesting. I find listening to a girlfriend who's worked for an accountant interesting. I find listening to a sister-in-law who's a nurse interesting. Um, people are interesting. Mm. But what can you teach them? That's also interesting, isn't it? Can you imagine trying to teach me not to talk? No, but that... that Don't you ever enrol me in one of those courses, <laughs> how not to talk? <laughs> No, but that's interesting, you know, that's interesting in itself. Like why can I, why can you and I talk underwater and maybe someone else doesn't know what to say or how to say it? Like that has got, that's got a, oh, look, yeah, look, it's a whole, that's a whole new subject, isn't it? Yeah, what did you say then? I missed I missed a good part of that. So, yes, it's... Yes, we're, we're going in and out. I think we might um, um, have to finish this off. Um, so, Lorraine, thank you so much for um, your views, your insight. It hasn't changed in all the time I've known you. Uh, one of the many reasons... Uh, I count myself lucky to have you as a friend. Anyway, thank you so much for your time, Lorraine. Thanks, Narelle. Thank you. See you later. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.